Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Captain Chris, I'm actually joined uh, this morning, believe it or not, on a Saturday morning here recording, and thank God for super smart people like Miss uh, Merrill and, and Van Grafton who produced the show, but I'm here with Doc Weiss, and today we're going to talk about kind of an angling addiction and his angling addiction, and so Doc, welcome to the show. Good morning. Happy to be here. Yeah, that's awesome, sir. Well, hey, um, before we go ahead and get into it, because we're going to we're going to cover a lot of things. uh, I want to ask you just for our listeners out there, go ahead and tell them a little bit about yourself and kind of where you're from and, and, and what you do. Well, uh, I'm from New Orleans and uh, lived there for uh, 21 years, 22 years until I moved to Slidell uh, uh, in 1971. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I grew up very close to Bayou St. John and uh, City Park, uh, which were wonderful fisheries for a kid. Um, and I started fishing very young. And the um, very first fish that I caught thrilled me so much, I wanted to do it again and again and again. And uh, nobody could really understand that, uh, least of which were my parents. Maybe my dad understood, but my, my mother could never understand right. how somebody could get so interested in fishing and fishing over and over again. Uh, I was a pest and aggravated them to want to do this all the time, even at a young age. In any case, so lots of time has passed since then. And in in retrospect, and I think like other addictions that are not caused by external factors like opioids, uh, endorphins are a hormone that are released by your pituitary and stimulate your brain um, to give you pleasure, relaxation. And it's good enough to want to do it again. So runners experience it, people who work out experience, Uh et cetera. In the list of categories in the, say, psychiatric journals, there is not a list of a fishing addiction per se. Uh But there's lots of literature on it and and other similar, quotes, addictions. Uh, and these are these are naturally released hormones that give you pleasure. And I think that's the best way that I can describe uh, my addiction. And uh, it's not curable. And uh, <laughs> like some other addictions, you, you, you know, you, you, you wonder if it's ever going to end, end and it never does. And, and, and the, the bottom line to, to all of this is I still have a thrill when I get a bite, feel a fish pull and it's not gotten any less uh, pleasurable to me to do it. So I know that this is a a speckled truth, and I know that it's a great big speckled trout, and I have had my pleasure of the great big speckled trout, but lots of other types of fish too. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate enough to do a bunch of different things, all of them 
fishing related and uh, different species. But the big trout, uh, and I talked with Gerald Horst about this yesterday for a good while, at least a half an hour. And his conclusion is that big trout are different from other trout, period, whether they're here or in Florida or in uh, Texas. And uh, he can't say why one fish is that much bigger than the other, or if one three-year-old fish weighs five pounds and another five-year-old fish only weighs five pounds. Uh, it's mostly, he thinks, a genetic thing. Uh, he, he can list uh, areas that consistently these big fish have come from, but it's hard to say exactly why. And I think personally, it has more to do with, with habitat. And uh, we touched on that a little bit yesterday about um, where they come from. And his collection of big fish and otoliths uh, that he did a few years ago were the mouth of the river, uh, Lake Pontchartrain, Lake Calcasieu, and he said Vermilion Bay was a sleeper area. There have been some big fish recently caught in the Grand Isle area, but they're not real big fish. They're not 30-inch fish. You know, that six-pound fish uh, and a seven-pound fish in Grand Isle is still pretty uh, unusual. But that's basically it. So if you want to catch, in my opinion, a big fish, very simply, you have to go fish where big fish live. You're not going to catch them under birds in Delacro. Uh, you, 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 you know, if you keep up with what's been going on uh, and you read reports, which most all of us do, the big fish every year come from the same places. So if you want to catch a big fish, you go sit at the end of the rocks at South Pass, or you sit at the the point of Treasure Isle, which is two casts from my house, uh, or the LNN Bridge. Or you just sit and you wait. It's a it's a waiting game, and you can put out of your mind catching a bunch of big fish. If you're catching a bunch of fish between, you know, even two to four pounders and a bunch of them, you're not going to catch a giant fish. Almost every fish that I know of, uh, really big fish, was by himself uh, and not a bunch of big fish at the same time. So mm -hmm. that's the biggest difference for me. Yeah. And uh, at this stage in my career, I'm happy to still be able to go frequently. Um, I've run into lots and lots of people over the years who also have this the same um, addiction, if you want to call yeah. it. And, and, and I'm, I'm happy for it. Um, in any case, I, I, this morning I made a list of names of people that I've run into, and it reads like a who's who of who caught fish in Louisiana. So Whoop. maybe later in the podcast we can talk about that too. But in any case, I started at a very young age catching perch, um, mullets, uh, anything that would bite on a cane pole and a piece of bread. Yeah. So And that, that has evolved to where I am today. Yeah. So you're a doctor. So what, what type of doctor were, like, would, would you practice? I, I practiced general practice. Okay. Uh, I moved to Slidell in 1971 and opened a practice. Okay. I practiced for uh, 35 years and then retired. And mine was a real general practice where I had uh, a year of surgical training and some urology. So mm -hmm. when I started practice, GPs did everything, fixed broken bones, delivered babies. Mm-hmm fixed hernias, et cetera. So I did a lot more than, uh, than, than just referrals, and I loved it, and I would do it again. But after 35 years, uh, that was enough, and I have something to do. Right. Um, 
I went yes, yesterday to a luncheon of guys that I went to high school with uh, over 50 years ago. And some of them are still doing what they did, whether they're lawyers or this or that, uh, a couple of doctors. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it because they love it, but that also because they don't have a, a separate uh, passion, passion or yeah. you know, pa passion to go to do something else, whether it's uh, you know, so anyway, 35 years was enough for me. I had a great time and I loved it and I did it again. So in, in general, I guess you would call me a, an old general practitioner. I got you. Now, what high school did you go to in, in the city of New Orleans? I went to Jesuit in New Orleans. Jesuit? And Doc, I'm a, I'm a Rummel Raider. <laughs> well, that's okay. I won't hold it against you. <laughs> I've got good yeah. friends that are Rummel Raiders, like right. Don Dubuque. Uh, yeah. In any case, my son, Robert, who teaches at Jesuit now, uh, and he's been a high school teacher since he graduated from uh, college, uh, taught at Rummel for a number of years. Okay. Uh, so... That's awesome. So, Go yes, ahead. no, I was going to ask. So like when you were actually practicing and stuff like that, so like me, I'm in the military and so I move around and I would quote unquote say that I have an addiction and, and like you growing up in the city of New Orleans had that addiction at a young age. It started actually in a, in a farm pond in Kill, Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, we were fortunate enough to have some property there. My, my folks got some, some land. And so you know, we started, you know, fishing for brim right off the pier, you know, using bread balls and a, and a little red and white cork. And so that naturally evolved into catching some bass. And and then I, I remember catching that first bass, my first bass so vividly, I actually wrote a, a story about it called A Devil Horse in a Debt of Gratitude. And it was with my brother. We were actually at a neighbor's pond and I was throwing a devil's horse. And I remember him and his friend, Eric Killian, um, fishing there and not having any luck. And I was a tag along, you know, and, and I just loved that. I just loved being around nature and fishing and anything. And I loved, I loved lures because I had cool eyes and all these other things. And so, man, I started building up my own tackle repertoire and everything else. Well, needless to say, I wanted to learn how to cast a spinning rod. And so my, my brother towards the very end was like, come on, Chris, I'll, I'll teach you how to cast a spinning rod. And so they had that little bitty frog um, pattern devil's horse. And sure enough, I caught my first bass. I'll never forget that moment. But my, my my point where I was going with this is that, like you, has never subsided. Now I'm in a 15-year military career, and I've mm -hmm. tried to feed the addiction, quote-unquote, feed the addiction through fishing. And fortunately enough, again, the Air Force has been kind where I've pretty much been able to pursue speckle trout, which is truly my passion, uh, throughout. So my, my question to you is, like me, when you were kind of practicing and all these things, did you still have that same zeal and level of passion where you would, where was still just always going fishing and yeah, kind of feeding the addiction throughout and providing for a family and, and that type of stuff? Well, I'm glad to hear that you started the exact same way that I did. <laughs> As most which of you listen Which is in a pond with a Smithwick, if you don't remember who made them, mm -hmm. yep. Devil Horse. Uh, but I read, I read everything as a kid that I could about fishing. And my main source of, of reading was, was uh, Field and Stream magazines. I can remember articles that I read back then and reread them and reread them. Uh, I can remember on Bayou St. John uh, catching brim on flies that I made. I can remember the first bass that I caught, uh, the first bass in general that I caught, 
on the old cream scoundrel worm. Yeah. And I used to have to, I used to get my dad to buy them. They came in a three pack from Montgomery Ward and uh, you could buy them from the catalog and they were, they were natural colored worms, but they were too small. They were about six inches. And I used to, to uh, heat the ends of them and make them bigger. I used to make hooks with weed guards on them. And I would, every single day that I could when I was a kid, uh, get to the back of City Park as early as I could and spend the whole day and, and catch uh, green trout, so to speak. Yeah. Um, that's a little digression. But yes, I practiced medicine and had five kids. And uh, it w I was very, very busy. But one way or other, I always got to, to fish. Uh, I was yeah. off... Uh, every Wednesday and about every third or fourth weekend when I started practice. And um, those those mornings that I fished, and to this day, I have never been a cant-to-cant fisherman. Do you know what a cant-to-cant fisherman no, is? No, I sure I know. Can't see in the morning and you can't see in the evening when you get home. So that means all day. Yeah. I, I was always limited to a half a day because with, with the practice and the kids and so forth. Yeah. So I'd go early. I was off on Wednesdays, would go early Wednesday morning and be home before noon. So anyway, the first fishing that I did here um, in Slide L was, was, was bass fishing. We started a bass club called the Honey Island Bassmasters. There were about 20 of us, and, and all of us at addicts, and several of them are still fishing. A couple of them became professional fishermen, uh, guides. Huh. Uh, so that that was the first phase was, was, was really bass fishing, although I had some exposure to speckled trout fishing in high school. Yeah. The trout fishing was so good, it was silly. Um, but in any case, those were trips to, to Empire, Empire jetties yep. out in the Gulf, Big, big trout, one after another. Ho-hum. Nobody worried about how big they were or what they weighed or yep. whether they had otoliths or not. So Yeah, and, but, and that's my dad. So my dad was the first podcast. And, and, you know, I mean, again, him obviously being my dad, him sharing those stories. And I've heard him, you know, and the fact that he's actually even shared more in the podcast that I have never heard before. So... <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, listening to stories that my dad has is, is amazing of the times back then. And like you're saying, it, it wasn't, it was ho-hum, fishing the same side of the West Delta uh, or, or the West side of the Delta, him duck hunting down there. It was like, from what I can envision, look, looking through his, his eyes, truly a sportsman's paradise where ducks were endless and the marsh was, you know, just teeming with life and yeah speckled trout redfish everywhere i mean just you name it mm -hmm. well i i think one comment i'd like to make with what you about what you just said was is um going down to the venice area or even around here in the you know slide l like pontchartrain area uh, i have seen so much of a change in habitat uh, that if people are wondering where the fish went, there just isn't habitat like there used to be to support that that body yeah, of biomass. Uh, yeah, biomass, um, and and not just uh, year to year, but if you go regularly, you see the change um, much quicker than 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 that. Mm -hmm. If you could if you could picture, for instance, the shorelines in Venice. 
say between South Pass and uh, and uh, the Main Pass area. Uh, the, the undulations are ins and outs of the shorelines and the ponds. They don't exist anymore. Mm. Back back when I fished a lot in Yellowcotton Bay and Hospital Bay, those were, were real bays. They had a lot of inlets. They had a lot of ponds. They had a lot of beautiful grass. They had crystal clear water. Hospital Bay and Yellowcotton Bay are not on any maps anymore. They yeah, don't exist. They're the Gulf. I mean, they're really they're the Gulf, an extension Mexico. of the Gulf. Yeah, I agree. And if you if you think about the the the, the little bitty things, uh, larvae and baby shrimp and pogies and crow, yeah. whatever, that's gone. That's that's gone. And and I think that also the 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 good areas, really good areas, they used to be a gazillion of them. Now yeah. they're only a few, and everybody knows where those few areas are and. Considering the number of people who fish, you know, advancements in uh, electronics, yeah. uh, the number of people who fish, uh, the, the, the multiplication of guides, uh, there's a lot of pressure on the fish, a lot. So, and not, not just here, not just in Louisiana, but up and down the coast. Yeah, I mean, social media is exacerbated and made kind of fishing areas much smaller. Hey, I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, probably certainly guilty and contribute to that, right? In terms of speckled truth, we try not to share spots, but just <laughs> general locations, but still people uh, are hungry for that information that we sure. once were hungry for, but you had to kind of know a secret handshake and a secret duress code before you got <laughs> access to that information before, as opposed to now it's pretty accessible, right? I mean, if you got a sure. YouTube account or actually you don't even need one, just go to YouTube you can probably mm -hmm. find at least, or you can be far off if you're just getting into fishing now than you obviously were back mm -hmm. then. But I, right. I don't want to digress too far down that because, I mean, God, okay. we can do an entire show with regards you to and I, you, you and I could, could oh talk God. right now until, until I would have to stop <laughs> at, the, at the start of the LSU game. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I know. I don't want to miss that either. But so, but we, we were talking about an angling addiction, right? And so, you share with me a couple of stories before us actually recording this. And so one of those was, um, I believe going in search of peacock bass. Can you tell oh, me gosh, how that was, bad that, that, great, that addiction yeah. runs deep in your bones? Oh, wow. I would say that if there was one species of fish that, uh, if it was, you know, close enough for me to do, uh, or, or repeat what it used to be, that would be the one fish that I would, be interested in going back to, to catch more of. Uh, I, I had <laughs> had a bass addiction a little bit before that. I went to uh, Lake Guerrero several times mm -hmm. and caught the, the last trip that I made, I caught a 13 and a quarter pound bass and plenty tens then, and I love to do it. And I went a number of times, but a good friend of mine named Jim Lamarck, uh -huh. who is a full-time guide here uh -huh. in Louisiana, uh, had had been running big boats for people in Florida, and he met a guy who had been to uh, Venezuela, and he went, had a great time, told me about it, and then I, I went with him one time, had a great time, and uh, we, we planned a trip with several of the friends of ours here in Slidell. There were about five of us who flew to a little river in Venezuela. The name of the river is the Cineruco. And in any case, we had a great trip. 
um, the plane, <laughs> it was in a small camp on the river, uh-huh. uh, very primitive. And uh, the pilot called us after we had, you know, on the day that we were supposed to leave, he called us to tell us he was going to fly in and stop just for a very short period of time, take off. He wanted us right on the airstrip. It was a dirt airstrip next to the camp. And what year was this? What year was this? This was in about 1992 or three, I think. In any case, so the plane flies in and lands and taxis and turns around and the pilot jumps out the plane, and we heard some popping noise, which we thought were firecrackers from the kids in the camp. And it turned out to be four uh, banditos who surrounded us. Uh, each of them had a Uzi, uh, an automatic handgun in one hand, and a hand grenade with the pin out in the other hand. So needless to say, that was very alarming. But in any case, uh, <laughs> they... They, uh, they put the pilot back in the plane, one of the camp owners, and they put all of us in the plane, but it was a very small plane. So five of us got in, four of us had to get out, and I was lucky enough to be the one to get out. So they, they got back in the plane and took off. We were about 60 miles from Columbia, and it turned out it was a you know, kidnapping, ransom. Uh, they wanted the plane, uh, and they wanted some money for the people that were on it. So Jim Lamarck, it, it, I, I still talk to him twice a week. Uh, he's still a good friend. It was a terrible, harrowing experience for him. Yeah. Um, anyway, nobody went back except for me. And Which is crazy to me when you were telling me the story. I know. Like, it's oh, crazy everybody to everybody else. I'm like, yeah. Well, I, I went again almost once or twice a year for the next almost 10 years. And oh back God. then, the... Uh, the fishery was very, very, wasn't explored much at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one guy who I used to see on television, and we passed a couple of times in camps who you see on television now, named Larry Dahlberg. Mm-hmm. He's got a long running, he fished there a lot. And it was primitive then. We didn't have, we didn't have ice. We didn't have formal camps. There were no houseboats, and the fishing was unbelievable. These fish... If you if you judge the size of a fish that you're going to catch or target, it's a seven pound trout, mm-hmm. it's a ten pound bass, and it's a twenty pound peacock bass. And a twenty pound peacock bass caught in a lagoon uh, that explodes on a fish is spectacular. They're beautiful fish. They hit hard. They fight hard. Um, the bait that we use, you're talking about a Smithwick uh, Devil Horse. This was a big game lure Jensen wood chopper, mm-hmm. seven inches long with a big propeller on the back end. And you just throw it as far as you can and just start ripping it and they mm-hmm. explode. I'm sure you've seen a lot of programs yeah. on TV when it, but like other things, you can't appreciate the, the beauty of the fish, how hard it fights and the habitat that you're in. And those, those days fishing regularly in uh, both Venezuela and Brazil were, were incredible. Uh, it started to slow down at the last few years that I went, so I kind of quit going, and that's about the time that I got interested in uh, catching big trout. Right. Uh, but that that was that was the most spectacular fishing that I have ever experienced: peacock bass in uh, Brazil and in Venezuela. And, so, and I've seen I've seen. So it's funny you mention that because you know, again, growing up, I would wake up early, you know, and I'd lo- I'd 
tune into TNN or ESPN and, and watch, mm-hmm. you know, Outdoors with Jimmy Houston, the hunt for big fish with Larry Dahlberg was one of those. And, right. and I remember distinctly, yeah, it just, yeah, kind of like that big, you know, d- dual propped or whatever it is, but a big uh, commotion, top water bait just getting right, right. imploded on. And so it's, yeah, the fact it's that you incredible. were there living that. I, it, I was there right when it, right when it started, right when Larry Dahlberg started going down there. Um, there's a, a book, if anybody's interested, that I haven't seen in a long, long time that was written by an author named, I um, can't think of his name right now, but it was um, Peacock Explosions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the author was Larry Larson. Uh, that's a book I could have read over and over and over again. And then having been there can appreciate exactly what he was talking about. Yeah. Peacock explosions. That's the only way you can describe what a hit from a really big peacock bass is like. An explosion, and it's usually close. It's not like, you know, having a tuna hit or a marlin hit yeah. 500 yards from the boat. This is right in your face. <laughs> yeah. It scares you. But in any case, we caught a lot of big fish down there, and, and, the, and the fishery is just not the same. First of all, Venezuela, I think Americans are not welcome anymore. And the places in Brazil now have become commercialized, mostly with big houseboats. And you'll see in a, in a kind of an isolated area, several houseboats that can accommodate 12 to maybe 20 people. And you fly in and out to them on a little float plane, but the fishing is just not the same as it used to be. So anyway, that was one phase of my yeah. uh, the, uh, addiction. The, yeah, exactly. And, and the fact is that, I mean, you went back after oh, that harrowing oh. i mean no that, that would literally so look i'm in the military and i've served during oif and or operation iraqi freedom and enduring freedom and inherent resolve and all these different you know uh uh operations to go and fight you know isis al-qaeda you know in afghanistan iraq northern syria stuff like that right i i, I haven't that's, seen my f- that's the real deal but one thing i have to say uh, that gave my family some some solace was the fact that after that episode in that particular camp, uh, they stationed some National Guard troops <laughs> when the fishermen were in the camp yeah. to protect us, number one. And I found out that hostage insurance was available, <laughs> which I bought. And uh, there were so many kidnappings that after a few years, I think the insurance company went bankrupt and uh, we didn't get hostage insurance anymore. Oh, my God, Doc. But anyway... Yeah, that's another good story. Oh my god! Yeah, but I mean, it, my my equivalent would be like, yeah, let's go back to Afghanistan in the mid two thousands, you know, or yeah, early Iraq, just for the fun of it, so we can go catch some, you know. Big well, I think the example is not <laughs> like what that I'm crazy. It's that man, it was so good. I had to go back, and and, yeah. and that's part of what I was talking about. Uh, yeah, compulsively fishing, almost compulsively. Yeah. So you alluded to though, that's about the time you started targeting big trout. So let me, let me back up a little bit. Did you, when you were growing up, I mean, fishing out of empire, you kind of said that you were catching trout, but were you really truly like a, a trout fisherman at that point? No, not really. Okay. No, no, that, that was the fish to go catch, but yeah, uh, it wasn't like, let's see how if we can catch a big one. It's okay. let's see how many ice chests we can fill up. And uh, my first fishing actually was, was, was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a friend whose name was Jack Van Geffen, mm-hmm. and I can't remember his daddy's name, but he lived uh, in New Orleans. 
And he was always looking for somebody to go fishing with him. And I would go fishing with him. And we would, I mean, beautiful trout. We would go out of the Empire Jetties, uh, drop a trawl, catch croakers. This was mostly in the spring and in the mm -hmm. summer. Catch croakers, go out to the Green Monster, the compressor rig. I'm sure you've heard of yep. those. Your daddy knows mm -hmm. those. And uh, we would go to Treme uh, or Battistella's and uh, sell the fish. And uh, he would give me my share after expenses, and he would always have a highball after we went fishing, and I would have to clean the boat. So that was fine with me. Yeah. I was probably, you know, like 12, 13, 14. So that, that was back in the day. And it, it kind of diminished the – I don't guess anybody thought back then that speckled trout would ever be hard to catch or there wouldn't be yeah. a total abundance of them. It was only after a period of time that to catch a big trout was important. And I think a lot had to do with the advent of CCA and the CCA star. And there were some rodeos back then uh, like uh, Grand Isle and mm -hmm. Empire and so forth that people yeah. would fish. Uh, but that's kind of evolved to uh, club fishing, so to speak. Like, and, and for instance, one that we fished a bunch was Toth. It's a Mardi Gras group that yeah. sponsors a fishing tournament. There's another one in Thibodeau in the name I can't remember. But then the high schools had fishing rodeos. So we fished a bunch of those. And yeah. um, there was a really good friend. I hadn't even thought about fishing a rodeo, but a friend of mine named Ricky Trahant, who is a really good uh, trout fisherman, that I fished with him a lot here in Lake Pontchartrain and Seabrook and and um, the Causeway area. Well, let's let's enter this rodeo. Well, we did and we won, and that was fun. <laughs> and I yeah. think the first five straight that we fished in, we won. And one of them was right now. I'm sitting a hundred yards from where we caught the fish. No kidding. And uh, this rodeo, we caught. Uh, we caught a fish. It was a, it was a Friday and a Saturday rodeo, I think maybe a Saturday and a yeah. Sunday, but the first day, all of our fish were over five pounds and we thought that was pretty good. The next day we eliminated every one of those fish and we had three sixes and two sevens and, uh, had the big, that's the biggest string that I've caught. Personally. Um, so three personally. sixes and two sevens. Yeah. Right. But that same year, which was 2012, was the year that I won the star. And I did it by continuing every day for weeks to go back to that same spot and try to catch another big fish. And I did. I caught one a little over seven. It got bumped. And then I caught one a little over eight. And so that year I was first and third. And that was kind of a, a climax or epiphany. That was plenty enough for me to not be so uh, doggedly determined to catch a single big fish because believe me, it takes a mental attitude that I'm going to go and spend a whole day in one spot to maybe just have a couple of three bites for yeah. the chance of catching one really big fish. And, 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 and that's another subject that I would like to touch on. And cause you always talk about what does it take to catch a big fish? Yeah. It takes going to a place. This is the most important thing where big fish live, <laughs> number one, yeah, and then spending the time there to uh, a lot, a lot of time to finally catch one and to not be frustrated. If you're only catching two or three fish a day, mm -hmm. assuming that they're big, you at least have a chance of catching a big fish in, in the lake itself. I've caught two fish over nine pounds. 
Both of them were on terrible days where I did not catch anything but those one that those one big fish. You know, one, how does that happen? It means that you're fishing for a big fish, and if you caught ten two pounders, that wouldn't be any good. But yeah, what, I was fishing in in places where they were good. They were both on plastic, so, um, and so, I remember those fish like yesterday. So I was going to ask you though. I mean, of course you've you've transitioned mentally as a big trout fisherman over well let me ask that question right have you since you started targeting trout and big trout in the early 90s is that something you developed over the course of time or was that something when you came into targeting big fish in the early 90s in the Pontchartrain basin right there in out of new orleans is that something you you had um, you mean, did you develop the mindset, uh, like the, the big mindset where, right. Hey, look, I'm leaving yeah. numbers. I'm looking for right. big bites and I got to right. basically slow down, be patient, right. expectation management, all right. that stuff. Well, a lot of our incentive, uh, around here, uh, really surrounds what Kenny Krieger did. And I can't remember the exact year that he caught his 11.99. I think it was 99. Trout that was an incentive for everybody to try to catch a big fish. Yeah. Now, we were catching big fish, but not like he made on that particular day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I can, I'm looking right now at the Wrigley's Bridge. Uh, Jason Trulier, mm-hmm. who's the young guy whose daddy is an ultimate shrimper, uh, Dune Trulier catches bait for the Wrigley's. Anyway, uh, he caught 111.2. Those are the two biggest trout in Louisiana records, I think. I don't think they're any bigger than Jason's and uh, Kenny Krieger's. Mm-hmm. Uh, as many big trout have been caught over the years, including Dudley's and Ed Sexton's, et cetera, et cetera. But th- those those big fish were kind of the incentives for some of us who were really interested in fishing to target big fish. I could name I could name the, the people and the fish, almost every big fish in, in the lake over the last you know, several years. Mm-hmm. The two nines that I had, I don't know another one over nine that was caught after the last nine that I caught. And that was, uh, that was around the, that was right after Katrina, right before Katrina, okay. same year as Katrina. What, hey, so that's a long time ago to not see another really big fish around here. Yeah. But when did they close the Mr. Go? You know, I can't tell you when they closed the Mr. I, Go, but I would say the biggest the biggest suffering of fishing from the closing of the Mystigo was shutting down Seabrook, yeah. which is where a tremendous number of gorgeous fish were caught year after year mm-hmm. after year. The water just doesn't flow anymore. And not only that, it used to be a great place to shrimp. Hmm. And there's no shrimp around there anymore either. Now, the fish have moved to... Uh, you know, behind the the, the lock system mm-hmm. in the Mr. Go, which is where I've been fishing lately, but right. they're not big fish. I mean, a three pound fish is something to be excited about. Right. So where did all the big fish go? Uh, I don't know. And that, like, like I said, it, it's habitat change. It's, it's all kinds of yeah, different the, things. The reason I mentioned that though, and that's just because the Mr. Go by virtue of its uh, accessibility running out through into Breton sound just gave you almost like a funnel of just high salinity, right? So it kept the eastern basin of the Pontchartrain super pretty salty throughout the year, right? And so 
what I've yeah. what I've seen in my own personal uh, pursuit, more or less, and kind of moving around fishery to fishery and having fished, you know, in seven different states and targeted big fish in those seven states is that, and you can ask some some of the guys McBride and Watkins and some of those guys that do target and have have done so for decades is that you know salinity is 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 a big deal to big fish and so high salinity environments the you know IRL down here in Laguna Madre super high salty hyper saline environments obviously produce big fish now North Carolina is an anomaly to me because this year uh they've they've actually reported a lot of really big fish to include a couple 30 inches just this year and so now that's not the at least from what I understand, it's not the the hyper saline environment that we have here, but mm-hmm. uh, I just needed to dive or maybe if I'd actually like to get somebody from North Carolina on the podcast at some point, because I want to learn a little bit more about it, you know? And so anyway, I, I, I say all that because I think damning the Mr. Go. Yeah. Like you're saying, the Seabrook area just went kaput. Um, well, not only not only that, all of the, the levees and so forth, uh, we don't have the flow in and out of Lake Pontchartrain that we did. And the causeway, which used to be a great place to mm-hmm. fish, and that was, that was uh, of course, on the bridges mostly. Yeah. And there are a few uh, man-made reefs that were made over there that were just terrific for a number of years. Uh, they're, they're not producing much anymore. Yeah, so- I'll hear occasionally of a good catch there. And that was all plastic fishing, which was really fun, you yeah. know, right on the, the legs of the, uh, the twin span, I mean, the uh, causeway itself. So to give you an idea, I grew up on the South Shore and playing baseball at Delgado, uh, you know, we would, outlook, again, being super addicted to fishing, we would, um, before practice, so after school, before practice, or before school, Brandon Treadway, my old tournament part my best friend there still lives in Kenner um he he and I would go fishing before class and we would go wade over at the Lake Villa pumping station uh and we would catch a limit of speckle <laughs> we catch a limit of speckle trout wade fishing the fringes of the of Pontchartrain and that's pretty far west I mean you're talking west of Causeway mm-hmm. now this is in the late you know, nineties, early two thousands, but it was awesome when you can go before class, you know, wade fish along the, the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. We'd throw them in right. a nice chest, go to class, mm-hmm. go to practice, come home, clean them up, and maybe even go do it that afternoon or that evening, you know? So mm-hmm. it was an amazing fishery. I, I, uh, I like Pontchartrain. I hate to digress, but I can remember back in my Jesuit high school days, um, one time I went to City Park between the end of school and the start of a baseball a baseball playoff game. I don't think we were playing Rumble then, but in any case, I went to City Park, caught a five-pound bass. I couldn't bring him home because my parents would realize that I had been fishing between <laughs> school and the baseball game. Yeah. I put him in a bucket. We won the game, and I brought him in the shower after the game. <laughs> To show everybody, and uh, and 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 an old city park fisherman whose name was Morell, mm-hmm. Harry Morell's dad. Uh, I showed him the fish, and he was a big city park fisherman, and he was dabbling in taxidermy. He said, "Well, could I have the fish?" And I gave him the fish, and about six months later, he appeared at my house. And had the fish mounted. That was my first mounted fish. But in any case, I, I skipped school, skipped church, skipped 
a lot of different things to sneak out to go fishing. Don't get me started on that. Or we'll we'll run overtime for sure. No, put it, yeah, but anyway, back back to the well, back to whatever subject you want to. No, pick no. Up. I was going to say though, I think a lot of our listeners can empathize with that, regardless of fishery. Is that chances are, if you're a big trout guy, follower yeah. of Speckle Truth, you have. Let's face it, it's probably something mentally wrong with you that that look, you, you don't live to fish, right? You fish to live. Yeah. And so Right. There's no uh, question about it, it. It's crazy. And so I think a lot of folks can empathize and have stories of their own that they can share is that yeah, I probably like 2 weeks ago I stretched the limits with my my own family here. I'll I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. And so I I, I told my wife I'd be home at 1. I got, uh, I just missed a, a huge trout, not going to lie. And so, but the bite was really off and I only mm-hmm. had six bites all day, caught three fish. And I, I, I had one that was just an, it, it could have been 30, uh, needless mm-hmm. to say lost it. And so I knew I was coming into a, a mid afternoon major and I told my wife I'd be home at one. And so I texted her and the text never went through. And so Thinking that the text had gone through, I fished into, let's say, 2.30, 3 o'clock. I got off the water. I called her, and she's mm-hmm. like, where, like, all of a sudden, where have you been? <laughs> like, going crazy. My dad's texting me. I got 800 missed calls, and my wife's like, where are you? You know, I finally mm-hmm. get, I'm like, I, I'm leaving fishing now. What's going on? She's like, you were like 10 minutes away from us calling a Coast Guard. Oh, wow. Like, I'm, I sent you a text, you know, and she's like, well, I never got, you know, needless to say, but with us, right, and, and folks that live to fish, we uh, we will always push the limits, right? And so that, I think. And you can appreciate the, uh, yeah, exactly what you're saying. One, one thing in the last podcast that I noted, and that's almost exactly what you're telling me right now, is your friend that caught the big trout on the two-pound tippet. Oh, Doc J. Right. If he hadn't stopped on his way home yeah. to check one place out uh, where he later caught the big fish, he wouldn't have uh, caught it. But but anyway, those are all things. There are other, other things. I'll tell you, not, not to, to digress, but to get back to the big trout thing was right at the tail end or during the time that I was uh, going to Venezuela uh, and, and a lot of our fish that we caught were on jigs. Well, it turned out plastic didn't work very well on jigs, but I had went to get a haircut at a barber shop, and the girl there uh, was looking at my fishing pictures. Oh, my daddy is Dudley Vandenborg yeah. because I caught those fish on a straight tail big Dudley, uh-huh. and that's basically how I met Dudley the first time. Okay. And he is really a remarkable character. And I, I, I know that I mentioned to you and you asked me who's the best. And I told you what my impression was. There's, there's first, you know, there's good, there's better, there's best, and then there's Dudley. And I, I think, at least in my circle, which is pretty big, uh, there's general acceptance that he's the Michael Jordan of trout fishing in um, this part of the mm-hmm. part of Louisiana, by, by far. And a super nice guy, willing to share information, loves to talk about it. Yeah, uh, and you know, did very well making the lures, and uh, just recently sold V and G lures. You know, which is yeah. a deadly, deadly plastic bait. Mm-hmm. So, I, I would I would strongly suggest that one day 
you get him on a podcast yeah. and, and try to pick his brain. He knows everybody, everything, and he is really passionate about uh, trout fishing. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors. As you know, we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout, as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. I was kind of sifting through social media this morning and because Rummel won the state championship yesterday. And so one of them was in, in, in foot in what in football. So they beat Catholic of Baton Rouge. And so when I was sifting through there, I noticed that Rummel had a fishing club and I'm like, Oh my God, if they had a fishing club back when I was, I would have <laughs> never got anything done. But, um, uh, Jesuit has one now too. Yeah. So I remember though, as a student, this is in from 95 to 99, uh, I remember going with my dad to listen to Dudley give a discussion about, and it was, so it was him, Brad Schmidt, Captain Brad Schmidt, who was a, who's a Rummel alum. Uh, and yeah, well, Brad, Brad fishes, started fishing with, uh, Nash. with, uh, little Nash. Yep, ab- absolutely. That's, that's little Nash to us. Right. And, uh, great guy. Yeah. Golly, what a good guy. Yes, sir. And so, but I remember listening to Dudley and this is at the, at the very start of him actually coming out with VNG lures. And so we would actually wade fish the surf and fish in Port Sulphur. And my favorite, favorite to this day, and you can't find them. And I don't think they're actually made at all. And so if Mr. Paul's listening, I, he owns uh, Dudley now, but it's a little Dudley, Dudley Jr. Um, not the terror tail, but the little straight tail. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, it's called a tan, it's called tangerine, the color. It's like mm-hmm. an avocado, mm-hmm. real light avocado. Well, I know the color. With the, I have them. Yeah. Okay. Send them my way. <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> no, with a little uh, silver uh, and a little orange fleck. And my God, Doc, we would wade the surf right there in Port Sulphur yeah. and Empire and just maul. Uh, I, I, be- I, I believe it. I, I really yeah. do believe it. I, my two biggest trout here in Lake Pontchartrain, one was on a straight tail avocado red flake dudley and one was on a blue moon ter- the, the, the small one okay. no the other one was on the same color avocado red flake terra tail uh and the small one both of those fish were on the small uh dudley's with uh three eighths ounce heads is that your favorite color dot avocado no I don't use it at all anymore. Do, no do you have a favorite color like if you had to have a go I would have I would say blue moon, blue moon. yeah you know, I, I don't I, color. I'm not sure if it's that important, but yeah, uh, fishing by like the Great Wall right now. I mean, he all tied in on a where color. Where we using I using shrimp creole, mm-hmm. uh, using the matrix shed in uh, magneto. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a clear thing. It's just like a blue, blue moon. moon. Yep. Those colors are all very very similar. Um, and so fishing a Pontchartrain complex, though, I mean, typically you have clear water, right? And a lot of that. Not not always. No. It, that never gets real clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but clear, I mean, clear. you know, if you if you can see two feet, that's plenty, plenty. Right, right, right. Well, you usually usually don't have two feet of visibility. And so we would fish, again, Port Sulphur is what I would consider my home waters because right. we had a camp. That would be, 
clear in happy jack so we actually used the blue moon with the chartreuse tail was pretty much our favorite but actually the best bait ever par none and i still have some and i don't throw them at all but it was a smoke uh four inch it was a four inch smoke grub a stingray tail grub mm-hmm. made by h and h and that on a short for some ungodly reason that combination i think it's just black and chartreuse or you know morning mm-hmm. glory or whatever it was but we would just we did really mm-hmm. well in Port Sulphur. That was pretty much that. And avocado and Blue Moon with Chartreuse Tail were pretty much a three. But I, I asked that just because if from a guy like you uh, who's who's fished a Pontchartrain complex, caught an absolute ton of fish, if you had like a certain favorite color or something that you kind of lean on. I, I think I'd have to say, you know, the Blue Moon. Okay. Uh, and, and to put a little Chartreuse on the tail, I know he made some. And I do, I do like... Uh, the uh terror tail okay and uh, and then now now the matrix shed is very popular mm-hmm. it's probably as popular if not more popular than uh, than the dudley mm-hmm. and their colors are great yeah so well i want to i don't want to belabor the point too much so you won the cca star um and this was in 2012 2012 right it, and you won the cca star just the one time right yes okay and you've won multiple. I, I may have, I may have a long time ago finished maybe second or third. Okay. Uh, a couple of times, but never won it before. Okay. I was under the impression that you had won it a, a couple of times, but it's probably because every time you look in the eastern side of the state, you're always up there in one one or two. Some some way. Yeah. Now my son Philip, and 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 that's how I got in touch with you. If you remember, mm-hmm. I had read your articles in the speckled truth. And when Philip and I went back to Florida, I said, Philip, we're going to catch two over 30 inches and we're going to sign up for the, uh, dirty 30, for the dirty 30. Yes. Well, guess what? Philip caught that giant fish. And that's how you and I met. Yes, sir. Uh, Philip way back when CCA was starting. And I don't remember what year it was. There was a newcomer's big trout statewide okay and my son philip caught a big trout right here in uh, in lake Pontchartrain and won that so there are two weisses that have won stars okay. and he's one of one of them okay. so maybe that's it yeah <laughs> that was a long time ago yeah so philip when he did register that fish so fishing with peter deeks uh, oh god is that- P- peter deeks if i had to go recommend one person if you want to go catch a big trout that's who you go with okay it, i don't know a lot about florida and maybe your other friend that did the last mm-hmm. uh, report knows a bunch of other people but peter deeks is pretty well known i had seen him on television catching big trout with uh, bill dance mm-hmm. i called and made a uh, set it up with him and uh, been three times and all three have been very successful gotcha but live bait only and he target he, yes but he targets uh, – now, I think he would take you if you want to go catch a bunch of fish mm-hmm. uh, somewhere else and catch fish. Right. But if you tell him, I want to catch a trophy trout, it's totally different from probably whatever else he does. Gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. He knows where, when, and how. Now, I know, especially from my best club fishing exploits, that major periods uh, – are very, very important. But when I was practicing, especially, I go when I can go. I'm sorry if it's a major period that I'm going to miss, but I do firmly believe that these big fish, uh, including the ones here in the lake, um, can be caught with a higher a higher degree of uh, 
of effectiveness uh, during major periods. Are you talking and our minor periods? Yeah. So referencing solenar, solenar tables yep. and t- you know tide. I think tide and solenar. They're, they're interchangeable. They're, well, they're not they're interchangeable the, almost, but they're close. Yeah. But if I had to recommend, if I was given a little talk on fish, I would say go early in the morning, late in the evening. You know, right mm-hmm. before dark or about uh, 30 minutes to an hour before and after the tide changes. Yeah. Uh, the biggest fish we catch, I think, are right at the tide change. Okay. Now, do you um, do you have um, a preference at any point in the month with regards to moon phase? Have you seen any? No, I, I, I'm sure that there is some effect, but I have never been that scientific to do that. Now, I, I used to keep diaries. Uh, but the diary, after about three or four years, you re- you, you realize uh, this is t- you know time of year, etc. Yeah. Uh, it just repeats itself. The spots, the time of day, the everything just repeats mm-hmm. over and over again. It's almost like why keep this because I know what's going to happen. Yeah. No, because and, and that, yeah, a reason I mentioned that, and I talked to, at length about it with Doc, and I think you heard that in that podcast is that. You know, we we pry, try to get pretty daggum technical with regards to seeing trends, and certainly he kind of was it willing oh, to he, share that with his own pursuit of trying to really figure out a fishery depending on time of year where they're packing the most weight because he's looking for a world record. I mean, every time. well, yeah, he's much more scientific <laughs> yeah. than I ever dreamed of being. Well, I try, yeah, I try to do the same thing to some extent, just because. You know, I'm trying to optimize my time, but not only that, you know, it's interesting to just understand a little bit more about those fish and in the fishery, you know, and how those big fish react and respond. And so you kind of alluded to it a little bit, you know, with regards to Dr. Horst and actually let's get into that a little bit. So you participated in a program and I know you're probably going to be like, well, I, I don't remember the specifics about it, but it was called Trout Watchers. And it was a program I do I do now because I talked to him yesterday oh, about it. Well never mind. And uh, yeah. he said that uh, he said that uh, I was wondering how I got involved. He says, Well you volunteered. And I said, Well what do you mean? He said, Well I didn't invite people to do it. He said I put out newsletters and I wrote an article about doing it and anybody interested was willing willing to come. Well, I have a feeling it was mostly probably Dudley said, hey, I'm going to go to Baton Rouge to do this. Would you like to go with mm-hmm. me? I think that's probably how it happened. Right. Uh, so I went with Dudley and he had two sessions and I can't remember whether they were two separate years or two sessions in the same year. Mm-hmm. And he offered uh, people to come who were interested to learn how to harvest a fish's otolith. Okay. And uh, it was a whole process of taking the otolith out of the fish, not damaging it, uh, how to submit it to him. And he did his studies based on uh, the otoliths in terms of the fish's age. And, of course, you know, he would have accurate length and girth and weight of these fish. And after, he, he, I thought it went on for a long time, but he said it was only two years. It was only two years. It went. And the yes. article that was, so the article itself was, it's interesting how things come full circle because Chris Berzas, who is a writer, a longtime writer for Louisiana Sportsman's as well as other publications, we've known each other now through writing 
through for Louisiana Sportsman. And so we share some things. And he sent me this and he said, I think you'll be interested in this. And so it was really just a simple PDF document. And it was with regards to Trout Watchers. And as starting to know you and now things are taking shape with our relationship, you know, reading through this, the idea, and you kind of alluded to it, was y'all got training to cut out otoliths. And so the idea of the program, right, was to harvest fish otoliths out of trout 25 inches or greater, right, yes. from across the state. So from Sabine all the way to Pontchartrain uh, or Shandy, right, or Chandelier. Wherever. Yep. And so, and then capture that data and then see by fish's age, I guess. Yeah, what the cor- correlation would yes, be. Yes, sir. So you talked to Gerald yesterday. Did he mention anything about what he found? Because it's only a little, I think, two or three page PDF document. It's not a whole lot. He, he really did was not able to make a conclusion. Okay. Except that big fish are loners. Uh, they're totally different from small fish. Uh, and it might be a fish that's three years old Mm -hmm. or a fish that's five years old. And he could not correlate, um, whether it was from this part of the state or, you know, West or South, or it was just, uh, kind of random and that he felt like it was more of a genetic thing. Um, you know, a Shaquille O'Neal fish, uh, unlike others. So I have it, Um, I have it pulled up right now. I'm looking at it. And so it was in 2003 and 2004. And from the West side of the state, there were 88 captures or 88 otoliths from the central part of the state, which you talked about, which would be Vermilion Bay and that area. There were Mm -hmm. 12. uh, Well, he said that the reason that it was so low in that area was there weren't, they were only able to fish five months a year. Mm Um, and there weren't many guides or people fishing. So that, that was, it wasn't a low number because there was a, a low number of fish. He thought it was because it was a low number of fishermen recording. Right. Okay. In Venice, there were 115, which as you would imagine, mm-hmm. Venice is a very high participation rate. A lot of people go down there. It's the, the end of the sportsman's mm-hmm. paradise. It's one of the best fisheries in the world. Uh, and in the east, which would be kind of where you're at, would be 39. And so um, I'm going to keep going here. So the ages, this is, I think, pretty interesting. Um, for ages three, so we're talking again, keep in mind, 25-inch trout. Eight. So the in 2003, 3%. So let me, let me go back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So there were 254 total. In 2003, there were 161 captured. Of the 161, 3% of that was actually age three. So aged at just three years old. So that fish reached 25 inches in three years of age, which goes back to your point of that fish being a genetic freak. And Mm -hmm. the thirties, that is the, the true monsters and, I think that lends to Mike McBride's podcast when we talked about it and him saying those 30 inch fish, people have to realize that those 30 inch fish make up one half of 1%. You are people who are catching them and registering them. It it's hard to do. 
right? I mean, that is really very, very hard to do. That that was a conclusion that Gerald made too. So the okay, so keep keep going. This is where it's pretty cool though, is that four, five, and six years are the highest percentages in both years, with age four being thirty three percent in two thousand three. So of 161 of those odalists that were captured, 33% of those were age four. Uh, so we see that in the, the Louisiana fishery that a fish to reach 25 inches is pretty, that's, that's not as long as I originally thought. I thought that fish would reach that eight, that length and that size at a much, um, older time, I guess. Yeah, usual conventional wisdom is that grow, they grow about a pound a year, mm-hmm. in which case an eight-pound trout would be eight years old. And about 28 and, uh, inches, that, right? That's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you um, have genetic freaks. could be four years old or three years old. Uh, it's just a genetic freak. Yep. And so one of the – I'm looking at the list. So the cool thing – and I'll post this, actually. I think it's pretty interesting, and I think a lot of our uh, followers would be pretty interested in this, but – Fish three was Doc Bob Weiss on the 9th of March, 2003 at a Pontchartrain caught a 25.13. What? Yeah, I know. A 25 inch uh, female trout uh, that was two years of age. Wow. Yep. And so that's the. If I'd have known that she was that young, I would have probably let it go. The, the trend though, that I saw throughout the entire list, both with you. So it was Dudley, it was you. I'm trying to look at some other names that I remember from the- I I tell you who else put a lot of them in was Ed Sexton down in Venice. I think he was catching a bunch of big fish there. So Buddy Oaks, uh, Mary Poe. um, Oh, wow. John Perrin, Carl Zimmerman, Dudley, you, Timmy Landry, let's see, uh, Rudy Hall. So I mean, oh, you know, Rudy. Rudy is still fishing. I don't know him personally, mm-hmm. but this past summer, his grandson won the star. No, ki- no kidding. With a six-pound trout. That was him. His son's name. Yes. No kidding. His grandson. His his son, who I know, is uh, Mike Hall, and he lives in Mandeville, mm-hmm. and he's a radiologist. No kidding. So Rudy and Mike and the grandson, whose name I can't think of. Uh, are still fishing like crazy. That's awesome. And the grand the grandson won this year's star with a six something. I don't know what it was, but yeah. Um, See, that's incredible. Yeah, Terry Saint Cyr. Uh, oh, Terry Saint Cyr's caught so many big fish. It's not even funny. It, Bootsy Toops. Yep, Bootsy Toops. Terry Saint Cyr. It's funny from uh, uh, fish one twelve to one thirty one is all Ed Sexton. <laughs> Oh, all Ed Sexton. Yeah. Huh? Well, he's pretty competitive, and he wants to be out there in front of everybody and let everybody know it. No, that's cool. But he is very good. And you know one thing? I'll, I'll digress since mm-hmm. you missed Ed Sexton. To my knowledge, the biggest string of speckled trout caught uh, that I know of was Ed Sexton and um, the guy who has uh, mud, mud boats. I can't think of his name right now, but Ed caught – a 10 fish string that weighed 77 pounds. <laughs> and on that string was a 10 and a half pound fish. And do you know what they were all caught on? I don't. That color that you like of the straight tailed Dudley, that kind of lime color. Yeah. That tangerine. Tangerine, uh, straight tail, big Dudley. I'll be damned. 
Where at? At South Pass. Let's say South Pass. South okay, Pass. I was going to say maybe the the. the... Ed, Ed has a Ed has a houseboat mm-hmm. at South Pass, and he's had it for years there. So for him to fish the rocks at South Pass is like me fishing the rocks here at Treasure Isle, yeah. which is where I live. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ed is really competitive, and uh, there's no telling how many tournaments he's won with Dudley. And most recently, they, they have won several uh, faux pas rodeo uh, tournaments, mm-hmm. and they fish hard, cant to cant, three days. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they invited me, I'd have to say, man, I can't do that. Yeah. So now that's a redfish, a trout, and a flounder. I understand. You know, the combination of those three, they fish real hard, and they, they look forward to it every year. Yeah. So the one thing I did uh, notice, though, throughout that entire list was the ages, obviously. But the the fish age from east to west side of the state. So from Jeff and Mary Poe on the west side to you and, let's say, Dudley and Ed Sexton, is that those fish in general reach 25 inches at a younger age on the east side of the state versus the west side of the state. That's just kind of me eye testing it, general observation. Did Gerald mention anything with regards to that? No, he didn't go into the details of what his, uh, you know, what his conclusions were. Um, no, we didn't talk about that. Uh, but he did refer me to the fact that the, the results were in the uh, Troutmaster book that he wrote. And that's probably what you're referring to now. But we didn't talk about that. So, Doc, um, you know, seeing the change that you've had in, in throughout the course of your life in the Louisiana estuary, I mean, I know we've kind of talked and alluded to it a little bit, but I mean, do you practice conservation a little bit more? Do you know? I'm not I'm not sure what you know, I saw that question and I was going to talk to you yeah. that off the mic because I can't say I throw them back. Yeah. In uh, conservation, yes, I would be conservation-minded, but it would be more in terms of, of, of restoring and, or preserving what habitat we have. And uh, I, I think that a, a lot of loss, most of the loss of habitat, period, have been environmental changes, uh, whether it's hurricanes or whether it's natural you know, yeah, so- erosion. And I don't know how to re- restore it, except that I'm for whatever efforts are made to try to restore it or slow it down. Yeah. So, and, and that's, um, I mean, that's the thing is like, you don't have to be totally catch and release, but the idea of like, and, and I, I agree. I think the biomass in general in Louisiana is still the highest in the lower 48. I mean, to go out and catch, I mean, my dad went uh, again throughout the course of his tenure in Taganos fish the fact that he can go out there and average 48 trout per trip by himself. I don't know another fishery that um, has that level of production. You know what I'm saying? But my, mm-hmm. my, my point there is that there is a sheer volume of biomass in, in the, in the fishery. And, and I know we've talked about it. Me and my dad is that, yeah, we've seen that decline, but on the same token is I don't necessarily know if it's truly the fish, which I think there are less fish, but I think it goes back to your point, which is conserve them. Be, and I really more so want to conserve what land we have and then bring that back and have a more concerted effort with conserving our resource, not the fish, but the actual environment 
uh, in Southeast. Absolutely. I think we take that so for granted as one fisherman in Southeast Louisiana is that, man, what a diverse fishery. I mean, I've, uh, like you, if you fished a lot of places in the world, I've fished a lot of trout fisheries in the States and I've seen different estuaries and fisheries. There is nothing like truly getting lost in the Louisiana Delta. You can't do it. I mean, it's pretty impossible. And then not only that, like at every turn, you could stop and put a power pole down and catch 200 trout really until your arms fall off. Right. I mean, you could do that. So, but it goes back to without that, the actual like habitat, the, the marsh, the getting back to where you were talking about growing up and my dad and that these base systems are now the Gulf. That's the issue. At they're the not, end, they're I think. Yeah. Right. So anyway, um, well, we're at a little over an hour doc. And so I can't believe Isn't that, that crazy. I know it, it's it's crazy. Crazy. So, I, you know, when you just said, I'm going to take a break, I looked at my watch and I said, wow, this was supposed to start at, eight, at, at uh, eight 30 and it's 10 30. Now I knew we took a half an hour to get the mic set up, but that's a, that's a good conversation, which I would love to have again. And I could do it again tomorrow and I probably will. <laughs> you know, one, one person I want to mention that maybe one day you could talk to is my regular full-time fishing partner. Uh, his name is Alan Sumas, mm-hmm. S-U-M-A-S, uh, and his nickname is Chink. Chink, yep. Chink is 83. And Chink, I'll ask Chink if he's ready, and his answer is always, I was born ready. <laughs> Chink is from New Orleans, a Gentilly area now, and I would dare say that all of these people we've talked to have not caught as many fish in his lifetime as Chink. Hmm. Everybody knows Chink. Everybody knows how good he is. Everybody knows he's still fishing and loves it. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to give a, sh- a mention of Chink because yeah. uh, he's, he's so dependable, and I guess he looks at me as dependable. We use my boat all the time. Uh, he's anxious to go. He loves it just as much as the rest of us, and he's fished all over all over, especially he is a star uh, and had been for years and years at Seabrook, mm-hmm. you know, which is cl- close to where he lives now. But he's always ready. Uh, he loves to talk at different functions. And uh, they have to put a hook and pull him off the stage <laughs> uh, <laughs> with him talking about fishing. Uh, so in any case. So that was actually, yeah, that so. I was actually one of my last kind of questions more or less was, you know, what are some anglers that you admire? And I think you've actually answered them through the entire podcast. And that would be Chink, uh, as well as, uh, Dudley. Dudley, Chink, Ed, okay. uh, Kenny Creeker, Jason Trulier, Jared, well, uh, just myriad of them, good, yeah. all, all, a lot of them, a lot of them, list goes on and on. Right, right. Well, I want to ask you this too, Doc. So in kind of, to round out our show and to close it out, uh, well, I'll ask you a few more questions before kind of giving you the reins mm-hmm. to kind of say whatever you want. But do you have a certain time of year that you really enjoy fishing or fishing for big fish for that matter in the Pontchartrain complex or even just in, in general? Well, in general, I think the big fish are almost always caught in the spring, um, the spring and in the summer. Uh, toward the end of the summer, if you look at statistics, it's unusual to catch a big fish, for instance, in August or July. 
you know, the big fish I caught was unusual to catch them that late in the year. Mm -hmm. But er early in the season, um, for instance, the star rodeo, it starts in June. The earliest in June is good, but March, April, I'd say those are May. Those are the best uh, big trout times, whether it's here or in the, uh, uh, you know, in the in the Chandelier Islands and that area, Breton Sound. We didn't talk about Freemason, right. Breton. Uh, I never did fish there too much because it was always seemed to me to be a long trip. But some guys like uh, like the Halls, for instance, uh, yeah. they run all the way from here to there, and they pass by. Uh, uh, they pass by a lot of fish to go catch big fish, and they love to fish uh, the islands, Freemason, Curlew. Gosher, um, yeah. Gosher, Breton. Um, so that's almost a different, for me, a different fishery almost. Yeah. Um, but time of year. And you, a different way of fishing. Yeah, but. What time of year? Yeah, but time of year for you would be kind of spring, early summer. Spring. Yeah, and I think for them too, but I'm just saying it's a, just a different, mm -hmm. a different fishery but early spring and summer but I, I there isn't a time that i don't go for something um you know during the winter months like now numbers are just incredible well i gotta get uh, we gotta get you over fish, here to the, but not, not real not real big ones yeah we gotta get you over here to the texas coast and get you in the winter wade fishing fishery and and see some of those big I would, girls i would love to and i mentioned to you one of the guys that i went with who i think is probably catches a lot of big fish wading is uh, bruce bruce bow b-a-u-g-h bruce bar who who's really close with uh the guy who made the yep. uh Corkies. paul brown yep uh so you know bruce and uh I, I, it's just you know it's, it's a pretty small group though really that keeps going around in circles. Yeah, we'll have to get so my pops. He still joins me, and he wades right next to me. He's young at heart as a seventy-three-year-old man trying to with a with a replaced hip and everything else. I I put. Wait a minute. Be be, be careful about the age. I said a young man. All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> no, actually, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, I I'm probably a little harder on my pops than I should be because I, I don't. I still see my dad not as that age, and and. And his, he doesn't have limitations. He just isn't as agile yeah. as he used to be. And so. Well, it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. I went, I went to that luncheon yesterday. There were 28 of us there and there we've all gotten old. That's for sure. A lot of gray hair, a lot of hearing aids and a lot of stories about <laughs> medical issues. <laughs> That's funny. Well, now we got to get you over here and I think you'd be. Uh... I, I, I would love to. And, and to, I still haven't met you in person. I know this is fun talking over yeah. the phone, but I would love to meet you. If, you, if you're down here, just let me well, know. And if, yeah, so we'll, you know, maybe you and I and your dad can go. And I think we'd talk as much as we would fish. Yeah, let's maybe try to link that up if we can, because uh, we'll be down there for the Christmas break and the holidays during that Christmas week. That, so that would be great. if weather and, shapes up, let's well, do well, it. Well, I, I've left out, I wrote a two pages of things and I, we haven't even touched on everything that I was going to talk about for, for fear of boring you, but maybe we can leave that for a fishing trip or a, or a, uh, another podcast. All right. Well, that let's do that. Let's do that. So, I mean, uh, the, the cool thing about it is the guests that we've, we've had have all been willing to want to come on again. And uh, like I've told them is that this is just season one, right? We, we want to have yeah. multiple seasons yeah. of this thing and make it yeah. long standing. And so, yeah. 
to have folks. You know, on. If, if, if we had if we had a meeting, kind of like AA or NA, <laughs> sitting in a group, and we had to raise our hands to say, uh, "My name is Bob Weiss." And I'm an addict. <laughs> I think we could get a whole room of people that would do that. We should get the Superdome, man. Uh, but <laughs> right. Well, cool, Doc. Well, hey, um, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it myself. So, do you? I always turn. Made me reminisce about a lot of things too. <laughs> and and I, it's always awesome, man. I hear those stories, and that's kind of what I've said before is that it's important, I think, for folks, whether you're from North Carolina, Virginia, fishery, or Texas, or not only that, even from the New Orleans area, if you don't know Doc Bob Weiss, this is a guy, an angler, a pioneer of of our fishery and somebody who's kind of put some footsteps out there for us to follow, right? And so it's important for us to know and understand that lineage. And so Having you on the podcast is important for me because I love hearing that. And I think it's important for folks to also hear that as well. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, Doc. So I'll leave it to you. Do you have anything that you want to close with? This is uh, any message or anything that you would like to kind of to leave. Well, don't look for a cure if you're addicted to fishing. There isn't any. (laughs) And the only treatment that I know for it is to continue fishing. And continue to enjoy it. There it is. That's all I have to say about that. Because it is. It's an addiction, Doc. So, Right. Well, thanks, Doc, for telling us about your addiction. I think uh, we can look forward to meeting you in person and meeting you, Daddy. Hey, everyone. I want to say thanks again for joining the Speckled Truth Podcast. We really, really appreciate it. And I want to say thanks again to our sponsors that support our podcast. And that is Miralore. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky as well as Mossy Oak Fishing without their support without their financial backing for that matter uh, this podcast doesn't happen so I want to say thanks to them and I want to say thank you to uh, to you for uh, listening to the Speckled Truth Podcast we really appreciate the support all the messages be sure to rate uh, and then leave us a, a note if of things that we can do better And so until next time, guys, remember, take what you need, release the rest, tight lines, and God bless. Bye now. Again, none of this happens without the support of our sponsors from Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky. Without your support, none of this is possible. So thanks again to them. We hope to see you next time here at the Speckle Truth Podcast. And we always want to leave you with this one tidbit. Always remember to take what you need and release the rest. God bless.